to suffer at the hands of humanity in Gabata and ultimately at Golgotha, how he suffered at the hands of the Father, how he took all of the punishment uh, for our sins. And I finished by saying that the fourth place that he went then was on to glory. And that's what I'd love to look at this morning. What does it, what does it mean that Jesus has been, uh, has been glorified? It's a word we use a lot in church. Um, it's a word we sing a lot about. We sing things like, show me your glory or let your glory fill this place. It's a word that's used a lot. It's a word that's used of Jesus when he was resurrected from the dead. So he went through those three places. He's, he's crucified at Golgotha. He goes into the grave for three days. There's another G in the middle. He goes into the grave for three days. But then he's raised again, and when he's seen by people, something has changed about about his appearance. Something has changed about his body. He's like recognizable but unrecognizable at the same time. His body can do things that it uh, it couldn't do before. He walks through through walls. There's, the holes are still in his hands somehow, but he's been glorified. Is the description that we're given uh, in the in the Bible to describe what happened? And then we know what happens is that Jesus appears to a load of people and walks with them and talks with them and cooks them breakfast, makes them fish, and he he hangs out with them and he encourages them. He breathes on his disciples. He's like receive the Holy. Spirit spirit he's like wait for me until the holy spirit comes and then the last thing we see of him in his physicality in the new testament is that he ascends up into heaven later on paul would write about him in ephesians that that uh when god raised him from the dead that he raised him up and he sat him at his right hand in the heavenly places we have this picture of the glorified jesus the glory of jesus means that jesus is he's sitting at the right hand of the father he's in he's in heaven um and that's often what we think about, I think, when we, when we consider what glory means. Like we would talk about uh, when somebody passes away, they've gone to be in glory. Yeah, That's the language we use. And it's kind of like we've, we've designated glory as something that exists in this other place. So, so in a typical kind of like religious Christian framework, here's what it looks like. God is in heaven, far and distant and glorious, and there's angels around his throne, and Jesus is up there, and it's somewhere that we can't, we can't kind of access, and we're, we're here on the earth, and it's broken, and it's dull, and it's unglorious, um, and, and what we do is we hope for the day when eventually either Jesus comes back and takes us to be in glory, or we pass away and we get to go to be in glory to be resurrected and be there with him but it's always something that's like future it's always something that's out there unattainable exists in a space that we don't have we don't have access to that's typically the way that we tend to understand or think about glory that it's something we hope for in the future but as i mentioned last week there's there's phrases there it says in the bible and it talks about how jesus was glorified and it talks then about how he's justified us which we know is something he's done he's made us right before him and it says that he's also glorified us in the past tense that somehow we've already been glorified with jesus now if that's just something that's out there to be attained in the future maybe in a new world or like then then why why is it in the past tense or what does it mean where it says that we would unveil faces beholding the glory of God are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now there's a glory that exists now as well, a glory that comes with heaven's uh, presence. And so heaven, what I'm trying to get at is that there's this connection between heaven and glory. And typically we think of heaven as someplace that's inaccessible and away from us and, uh, and something that we can't get. But that's not the biblical kind of picture of heaven and earth. 
See, the Bible paints this picture of a heaven and an earth that started fully connected in the Garden of Eden. Of two realms, there's a realm where God created humanity and the animals and the physicality of stuff we can see. And then there's also a realm where he created spiritual beings, the Elohim, the, 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 the angels and, and the cherubim and the seraphim and all these kind of creatures we read about in the Bible. But that they overlapped, that the intent was that they would overlap and that the earth would be a place that was an expression of the glory of God. And... Um, what I want to do is, uh, is, is look at this whole idea of, of heaven and of earth and of, 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 of God being manifested or his glory being manifested where heaven, where heaven touches earth. Because you see glimpses of it throughout the Bible. Eden is an incredible picture of it. You see after the fall, you even see like, uh, like in the Tower of Babel, you know when, when they say, yeah, the guys, the humanity after the fall, they're like, let's build a tower that reaches the heavens. There's some sort of understanding in them that, that there should be a connection point between heaven and earth. And they try and build it themselves, a way to actually reach up into the sky, something that makes a name for themselves. And God scatters them. But then you see glimpses all through the Bible, culminating in Revelation at the end, where there's like a new heaven and a new earth that are joined together. But there's these glimpses all throughout the Bible of spaces where heaven and earth touch. There's, you know the story where Jacob has this dream or this vision and he looks up and he sees this ladder ascending into heaven and there's angels coming up and down upon it. And he calls it the place, the place of God, Bethel. Like that, that it's like, it's like this portal between the spiritual realm or the heavenly dimension and the earthly realm. We see it later in the temples where it says that like God uh, ordains Israel to build a tabernacle, to build a temple. And again, it's places where, where um, God's presence comes and dwells with people, where the spiritual realm and the physical realm, like they, they meet and they, they overlap. And ultimately it points to, to Jesus and it points to his church and what Jesus is doing in the world. And I've been on this journey of exploring it from a couple of different ways. The Lord's led me into this kind of like thinking in a few ways. One is like trying to explore the whole side of spirituality. We live in a world that's, it's materialist, meaning not just consumerist as in we like to own material things, but materialist as in the prevailing thought is whatever we can see is the stuff that's real. And then anything that we can't see isn't isn't real, yeah? And that's, that's just the way that, that humanity is going. Like, it's just whatever we can see and touch and feel with our limited senses. It doesn't even make sense when you think about it to assume that the universe can be understood by, by animals or by human beings that have just five senses. That, that it doesn't make any sense that, 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 that the universe would be limited in that way. But that seems to be something all of humanity has bought into this materialism. And, uh, and me as well, I'm very practical kind of, kind of guy and when it comes to the spiritual stuff sometimes I wish in the Bible there was like an ABC of here's how this works here's how this works here's how this works but it just assumes a lot of knowledge or understanding um, that people would have understood when they were reading it about the spiritual side of things so I've been trying to explore that this whole aspect of the spiritual realm and how we exist in both of them and how that would work. And I've also then been trying to explore one thing that's really captured me over the last while we did this whole series on sonship I don't know what it means to be a child of God. We sang about it this morning. But the whole idea of inheritance, where it talks about being a child, one of the benefits of God adopting you into his family is that, is that you have an inheritance. And I'm like, what is that? 
inheritance. What does that what does that mean that we get an inheritance? Is it possessions? Is it whatever? And it led me again into this kind of thinking of what it what it means to, to have an inheritance. And then the same thing when we see that Jesus is glorified and he says we're glorified. Somehow these things are all connected. Somehow this idea of there being a spiritual reality, of us having an inheritance as being children of God and of uh, excuse me, and of us being glorified or somehow sharing in Jesus' glory all connect and I've been like reading and I've been studying I've been listening to some podcasts one in particular there's a podcast called the Bible Project uh, with a couple of guys Tim Mackey and John Collins and one is a theologian and the other one is like this animator and they have these big discussions about theology and then they turn them into like these videos that express the things that they, they've been talking about. So you have these big long conversations, like hours and hours of podcasts, and they condense them down into a little, a little video. And I've been like listening to some of their stuff about it, particularly about the idea of temple. And as you would have it, I was writing this sermon and uh, they hadn't released the video yet, but about like two days ago, literally as I was writing this sermon, they released this video on the temple that I want to show you, which sums up some of what I've been speaking about and will we'll kind of launch us into what I want us to look at in more detail this morning. So Mal, would you uh, play that video for me? If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, 
They did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So, at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building, because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Isn't that cool? It's so, like, insightful. Like, this, like, right the way through from Genesis 1 through to the end of Revelation, there's this idea of God wanting to be with his people. Oh, God not being a God who's, like, distant, didn't create the world to sit off on, like, like, distant away from it and just observe it, but creates it as a space that we see in Eden where God wants us to work with him, where he wants us to reflect him. And even when you think about a temple, when you think about Eden, they, they, they understood, like, that, that's a whole new concept to me, the idea of Eden as a, as a temple. But it was, it was like a high place. There's a place in, in Genesis where it tells us that four rivers flowed out of Eden that filled the whole earth, meaning it was the highest place on the earth, if that's the source of all the rivers that filled the whole earth. And the, the Israelites would have understood the skies. They, they, they thought of the skies as the place where God dwelt because it was a place that was otherly. It says God created the heavens and the earth. And the same word for heavens is the word for, for skies. So God created the sky and the earth. And when they looked up at the stars, they, they thought of the stars as being living creatures. They see the sun and it gives them heat and it gives them light. They see rain falling unexplainably from heaven and giving growth to the land from the skies. And, and they understand the, the, the sky is not as being just like balls of gas or a vacuum of space like we understand it as, as modern humans. But they looked up and there's a sense of wonder that this must be the place where God dwells. And symbolically, that's what it was for them. It gave them that sense of wonder, of otherness. And so Eden is this highest place, which is then the connection point between the heavens and, and the earth. And God walks with them in the garden and God is with them. Um, and if you think about a temple like... Uh, you know where it says that, that, uh, that God created man and uh, Adam and Eve in his image. In his image you created him, he puts them in the garden. If you visited any temple and you walk to the center of the temple, usually what's there is like an image of the God that it was built to represent. You'll see some sort of statue or idol or something like that. And it's like mankind is like the image of God placed inside this temple called Eden. And it just shows that this is what God's heart was, was to be 
with mankind, for the earth to be filled with his glory, to bring it back to that glory word, that the earth is created as an expression of his glory and his goodness, and mankind are meant to image him, we're meant to to reflect him, to represent him, and we're given the job to rule over creation, to extend it and to, to build with it. And we know we look the cultural mandate, go forth and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion over it. Like that. That's, that's our role um, in creation, that we're to be reflections of God's glory. Now, we know that in the same way that God created an earth and a, an, a, an earthly realm, there was like a, this spiritual realm. And we read from other places in the Bible that there was like a rebellion in heaven at some stage where these creatures that were made to give God glory in the heavenly realm rebelled against them and wanted glory for themselves. That Satan led a rebellion against God. And in Genesis, we see humanity being invited into that rebellion by Satan. And it comes in the form of a, a, a snake that tempts him to eat a fruit from a tree. But effectively what he's doing is saying, do you want to join in this rebellion? Do you want to replace God? Do you, like, instead of being an image bearer of God here, instead of reflecting his glory, what if you could have some glory of your own? What if, what if you could bring glory to yourself through the things that you do? What if you could decide what's right and wrong? That's the invitation that he gave them. And it's the invitation that they they took, we often maybe think of Adam and Eve as being deceived, and they were deceived, but they also chose it. There was, a, there was a choice to say, no, I would prefer my glory than to work with God in, in his glory. And that's exactly what we get in the kingdoms of the world that come. We get mankind building stuff for his own glory. And if your well-being gets in the way and my glory, gets, guess which one I choose? I choose my glory over your well-being. And it doesn't take long for, in fact, the first generation we have, we have jealousy between Cain and Abel and Cain kills Abel and, and it expands. And, and we see, uh, God says to, to Cain, like sin is crouching at your door, that there's, there's not just a physicality thing of humanity going on here. There's spiritual forces that are behind it. And when we aligned ourselves with the enemy, and his rebellion over God to want his own glory, we in effect became slaves to him. And the capacity that we had as humans to create culture or to give glory to something through our work is now aligned with the enemy rather than aligned with the creator of all things. And we end up building kingdoms that give glory to the enemy and to the the spiritual rulers. By the time Jesus comes along, Jesus describes, and Paul describes, early New Testament understood that our battle wasn't against flesh and blood, but against what powers and principalities in the the heavenly realms, that we'd given away our authority on the earth. And now there was these spiritual powers behind the earth that were motivating humanity, using humanity towards their own ends, making themselves worship by being anti God, not by wanting what God would want, but by wanting the opposite. And humanity choosing that gives them glory. So we go from being glory bearers of God, showing the world like or what the glory of God looks like by ruling over creation, to becoming in a fact, in fact, almost like image bearers of the evil powers, showing the world what what evil looks like through the things that we build. Instead of ruling over creation, we're subservient to the enemy. And it accelerates. And Paul describes it in Romans this way. Um, thousands, thousands of years later, he describes it. He says about the, the, the humanity. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's a, that's a throwback to the serpent was crafty. The serpent was the most wise amongst the animals who tempted them. Tempts them with wisdom. You're going to know what's right and wrong. We claim to be wise and we become, we become fools. We exchange, listen to this, the glory of the immortal God. We carry the glory of the immortal God. We had it. It's like saying this is something that you possessed as humanity. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man from birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. It tells us what happens to humanity. We give up the glory of God. We exchange what was true about God and we choose to believe something else and we worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's where, that's where humanity is at. We look around and we just see what are the values that drive the world. There's spiritual forces behind it. Their greed, their ambition, their power, their oppression, their, 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 their lust and sex and money and, and stuff that, that, that just doesn't satisfy. But the world would, would tell us that it does, but we're, we're aligning ourselves with, with different values and giving glory to them. Now, God, God hates this. And God knows and loves the potential that he created in in his world he knows what he made it for he knows the potential that was wrapped up in it he has this vision of what it would look like to live on an earth where he could fill his glory with his people and work with them in it and he begins this plan to restore a connection between heaven and earth and to restore access to his glory to humanity who without him are are hopeless and to enable us to to bear his image and work with them again in the world. And as the video shows, we see glimpses of it. We see the tabernacle. We see the temple. But ultimately, we see, um, we see God initiating a plan to have a place where his glory dwells on the earth. Where heaven meets earth is where God's glory dwells. Where heaven, where the heavenly realm meets the earthly realm is where God's glory dwells. And ultimately, that was pointing to the coming of Jesus when heaven and earth were going to meet in this new way, like the video talked about, when God's glory would dwell on the earth in new ways. I know you're familiar with these scriptures, but we read over them, and I was reading again. I'm reading John all the time now at the moment. And uh, in the next scripture, Mal, do we have it there? Um, at the beginning, John here, John 1.14. We know this in the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. speaks about the pre-existence of Christ and his role in creation. By the time we get to verse 14 of John 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us now the word dwelt if you look at it it means like to set up a camp an encampment it's the same word the same concept that's used to talk about the tabernacle you, you could translate it say the word became flesh and it tabernacled amongst us the word became a tabernacle that entered into the world and moved around like the tabernacle did and what was the tabernacle for to have a place where the glory of god could rest it says the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and what happens and we have seen his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The video says that Jesus becomes the temple. He becomes this space where heaven and earth connect again. I've moved on to Mark this week, reading the Gospel of Mark. In the very first chapter of it, you see Jesus being baptized. And in the scripture up there, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, look at this picture. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. The heavens are torn open. The connection point between God's realm and our realm, like they're torn open. There's a tear in the atmosphere. 
He says, the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended like a dove and a voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. Heaven and earth are connecting in Jesus. Heaven and earth overlap in Jesus. And this is the glory of God. When we've seen it, we've seen what God's glory looks like. It's when heaven and earth are connected. And Jesus completely understood himself as the temple. In the other scripture that we have up there, again, from John, Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem. And in the outer courts, they were allowed to sell some stuff there for making sacrifices, but it had been taken to an extreme and there's money lenders there, whatever. Jesus makes a whip out of cords and he starts like lashing people out of it and kicking them out of the temple because he's consumed with passion for the temple. And he gets a hard time over. People are like, who are you to do this? Who are you to, 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 to do this stuff? And here's what he says. Um, they say, what sign will you give us for doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, if you've ever seen the temple, I got this interactive map on my phone during the week where you can hold it up and like walk around like, your, like a virtual reality app of the temple. The temple takes up, when, I, when it looks to me, it takes up like a quarter of Jerusalem. It's huge, magnificent, like incredible big structure. Jesus is like, knock this thing down and I'm going to rebuild it again in three days. And they're like, it took 46 years to build this. How are you going? And it still wasn't finished. They're building the second temple. How are you going to do it? And even his disciples didn't understand it at the time. But John writes back in later that he was speaking about the temple of his body. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm the temple. I'm I'm the place where heaven and earth connects. Jesus is the first true human born, not into sin, but born from above, with a chance to redeem humanity, a chance to do what Adam and Eve didn't do, a chance to actually reflect and image the glory of God. Colossians calls him this. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I mean, it was in God's heart before creation was even made. There was going to be an image. He knew we'd mess it up, but here's an image of the invisible God in Christ who's going to come. Like the way there was an image of God in the Garden of Eden and we messed it up. Here's God's plan B, which is really his plan A to unite all things. But here he comes and, uh, and he, 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 uh, he, he's the image again. Earth once again has an image of God on it, walking around. And what does he do? He rules He shows like authority over the wind and the waves. He has dominion over creation like we were told we're meant to have before we fell. And he he has dominion over like the beasts of the field like we see. You know where he goes into the desert and is tempted? It's like it says he was tempted by the devil in the desert, yeah? But it says he went out there and he was with the wild beasts. Just that little phrase, but it's meant to point us back to Genesis. It's meant to point us back to Eden and see, here's God exercising dominion over the wild beasts. And here's God being tempted like Jesus, like, like, like Adam was tempted in the garden. What does Satan offer him? He's like, bow down to me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Effectively, all those kingdoms that those humans messed up and gave, gave to me, I'll give them back to you if you'll bow and worship me. Same temptation he gave to Adam and Eve. He's like... You can have all of this stuff if you bow to me, if you agree with me, if you worship me, if you put more worth on what I'm saying than what God has said, the essence of worship, to put worth on something. If you worship me, but Jesus resists him and Jesus uh, casts him away and the devil leaves him and he shows authority over everything. And his kingdom comes and his kingdom looks, he comes announcing, look, a new king has arrived, a new way has been. He sets himself up against the rulers and authorities who've taken a hold of earth through their power and through their manipulation of humanity. And he, he, he sets himself up as this authority, but his kingdom looks nothing like 
the kingdoms of the world. It's not a kingdom that's built on the back of slavery or oppression or the exertion of might over one another or getting what you can get out of the world. Or It's not built on fame or power. It's not built on any of the things that the kingdoms of this world are built on. Jesus comes and says stuff like, blessed are the poor, theirs is going to be the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. He comes and, 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 and he talks with confidence. He has authority over death. He has authority to forgive sins. He, he speaks with this, new, this newness of life that hasn't existed yet. And, it, and, and people are, are confused because all we've had for millennia and all we've still had, when, like, except for, through the church, but for millennia is like kingdoms that look nothing like this kingdoms that would say here's what to value here's here's what's well, like here's who, here's the important people in the world the powerful and the wealthy people the people who've made it and and jesus like you can't serve both god and money he challenges everything challenges it all he says basically there's a new way to live and and to me as i studied it this week it kind of gave new understanding to why he says we need to be born again to why he says you need to be like a child because he's like you have learned so many ways from growing up under these kingdoms right that if you want to enter this kingdom you're going to need to become like a child again you're going to need to learn new ways you're going to have to reject old things and become like you're born like you're born again you're going to be born by my spirit but you're going to have this new naivety of just believing the things that i say about the kingdom about the world because it doesn't look like anything we've ever seen before and for the the people who heard this at the time, right, it must have been compelling in one way. And then in other ways, it must have been, it must have been like, like terrifying, especially as we see when it got to the space that we looked at last week, to Gethsemane, to Gabbatha, to Golgotha. Because Jesus came preaching this stuff about meekness and humility, about turning the other cheek, about forgiving one another, about not striving after the things the world strives after. But then when you see it kind of put to the test, or put to the test by the values of the world anyway, it seems like he's defeated. It seems like if this is the place where you're going to prove that you're right, Jesus, then you don't let those powers come against you. You know, you don't let those powers arrest you. You don't let those powers crucify you. You don't let those, those, those things be thrown against you. But we've seen last week, Jesus subjects himself to this spiritual suffering. And then he su- su- uh, subjects himself to even the authority of man where, where Pilate sits in a judgment seat over him and he allows all of the kingdoms of the world he allows all of the things that they value to be thrown at him right so he allows their power to be exerted he allows them to to play their full hand you know the manipulation the betrayal the oppression the torture the humiliation of him he allows them to play their full hand at it right and uh, and it must look like he's defeated because he's crucified but what happens the temple is destroyed but three days later the temple is raised from the dead again and what is Jesus saying there? He's, he's, he's proven that the way that he has said we're meant to live, he's proven that the values of this kingdom that he's been espousing, he's proven that that's the right way to be. God is lending legitimacy to, to say that what, whatever Jesus said and modeled is, is true, is the truth. It's all proven to be true because the world threw everything that it had at him even like using their ultimate weapon of death and they killed him. And what does God do? He raises them from the dead he's shown them that ultimately all these powers that think they have the power are nothing compared to the power of god because even when they do their worst against you what happens god raises you from the dead and proves that everything jesus said about the meek inheriting the earth about the poor being blessed about those who suffer and being blessed because of like he proved that that's that's true and it says that he uh here's what it says in colossians 2:15. 
having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He disarmed the spirits and authorities, the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over the cross. And this week as I've studied it, I've come to understand that in light of the resurrection. See, the resurrection changes everything. The elephant in the room when we read those verses is this. If Jesus triumphed over the powers and authorities by the cross and made a public spectacle of them, then why when we walk outside of this room is the world in bits? Why, why does it still look like those powers and authorities still have power and authority? If he's made a spectacle of them because of the cross. And the answer to that is that we live at the moment, in the time in between their exposure and their downfall. But here's what the resurrection proved. The resurrection proved that what Jesus had said was true. That his power and his authority are the ultimate power and the ultimate authority. And that if those other powers and authorities throw everything they have at you, still they can't have the final say because Jesus has defeated them. He's shown that their power is not really power at all. He's shown that Jesus is the representation of everything that's true. He's proved that everything that the devil or the enemy or whatever seems to have to offer you amounts to nothing at all. But there's a real way and a real truth and a real life that's available to you. Yeah, they still operate through kingdoms and through, through power structures, through systems that are corrupt and broken and are against the kingdom of God. But here's what's happened through the resurrection of Jesus. They've been proven to be futile. They've been proven that in the long run they don't work out, that they don't hold the true power. And the same Jesus who exposed them will one day sit in judgment of them and condemn them forever. And we live in that in-between time. And the gospel of the kingdom of God allows us to live with bravery in the face of oppression, in the face of of struggle against spiritual forces and the space of struggle against humanity because we know that even if it throws its worst at us, even unto death, that we have this hope that God raises us from the dead like he raised Jesus from the dead. You see that the resurrection changes, changes everything. Changes everything. And the resurrected Jesus is glorified. He's glorified. He's, do you know another thing that used to confuse me where it would say that, uh, you know, that Jesus has been exalted and he's been placed on a throne and he's been given like all dominion, all power over everything. You know, like everything that is and is to come. And that confused me because cause, cause surely God already had that, yeah? Like, like surely that was already his. Like Jesus didn't need to die on a cross to have authority over the enemy. Click of the fingers and he's gone, yeah? Like one thing is the creator and the other is our created beings. One holds all the power and the other exists by permission until ultimately he doesn't exist by permission anymore. And I was like, so it doesn't, like, what's it mean that God gave him authority? Of? Why did God have to give him authority? Surely he had authority already. And he had that, like he had that before the foundation of the world. He made everything. And it hits me this week that the reason why Jesus did that and the reason why Jesus came and the reason why Jesus has been glorified as the first of humanity is that he wants to share that glory with us again. See, he already had it, but we didn't have it. And we were made to have it. We were made to image God in the world. We were made to be a reflection of his glory. Without him coming and paying the price for our sin, without him coming and paying the price for us engaging in the spiritual rebellion against God, we were destined forever for condemnation. But Jesus comes not because he needed the glory, not because he needed to be seated at the right hand. That's where he was beforehand. 
He came because ultimately he wants us to be seated with him in heavenly places. And he opens up this idea for humanity again, this second chance for us to be rulers over creation with God. And I'm convinced that's what it means when he says, those who he's justified, he's glorified. He's made us partakers that we get to share in his glory, like we shared in his glory in the Garden of Eden by ruling over creation, or we're meant to. We get to share again in his glory by ruling over the earth by looking after it, by tending to it, by creating culture, by, by, by being a reflection of who God is to the world. And we do that to the ultimate extent when he returns again. But in the, in the in-between time, between now and then, the church exists as the temple of God. In the same way that Jesus was the temple when he was here, and heaven and earth overlapped, now the church exists as the temple. Ephesians 2, 19 to, to uh or John 17, is that there and then? We've read this verse again and again in John, but here, look, here's some verses like that. You, the, the, the highlighted text may not have stood out to you. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What's the glory that Jesus has been given? He's been given the position that humanity had to rule over the earth as the firstborn of a new, of a new creation. The glory you've given me, I have given them. They may become one. Ephesians 2.19, he says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The same Jesus who claimed to be the temple himself now makes us a part of the temple. We are the place where heaven and earth overlap. And in Acts 2, you have this picture of the Holy Spirit coming, and there's again a mirroring of the temple. If you look back at the tabernacle where the glory of God dwelt, and then you look at the temple where the glory of God dwelt, in both places when they were dedicated to the Lord and God moved in in his glory, it's associated with this fire that would come and be over the altar in the Holy of Holies. There would be a, a fire presence that showed that God's, God's power was there, God's glory was there. What happens in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes? It says, there was a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole earth house where they were sitting then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them and they were filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other languages as the spirit enables what's happening there is you and i the church as a temple are being dedicated to god and god by his spirit in fire is coming and resting on the place where his glory is going to dwell that we become an expression expansion of the glory of god in the world we become a living temple that's what the church exists to be the place where heaven and earth overlap the place where heaven touches earth is is you and is and is me and is us together until jesus comes and fills the earth completely with his glory and heaven and earth overlap completely and are made one in entirety that we are the church we are his temple the connection point between heaven and earth. And man, I don't know where I don't know where to land this sermon because every everything that I'll probably do with the rest of my life should be an expression of that incredible truth that that God has made me a place where heaven and earth overlap. That's mind blowing. That's I mean the implications of that reach into every aspect, every nook and cranny of our lives, of our society, of our world for the rest of eternity. There's two places I would love you to just consider this week. One is that 
when Jesus made a public spectacle of the enemy, he disarmed him of his power. He took back the authority that humanity had given to the enemy. And I want you to know this morning that you have authority over the enemy. Very often we talk in like fear of the enemies, his great big spiritual power or whatever, but greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. If you're in Christ this morning, you are in the one, or the one is in you who has taken authority back from the enemy. Yes, humanity gave it away, but, but Jesus Christ has taken it back. The devil has no authority over you this morning. I want you to know that. None, none whatsoever. The devil has no authority over you if you're in Christ Jesus. We're told if we resist the devil, he'll what? He'll flee from us. That we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony. That we're given spiritual weapons to stand against him. And those spiritual weapons, when you think about them, to not make them big mystical things like spiritual weapons, around, they're very practical. He's basically saying, live the way Jesus lived. Live with like the shoes of the gospel of peace. Live in peace. Live in truth with the belt. Like, all the defensive weapons are the attitudes of Jesus. Live in righteousness, faith, peace. Live in the salvation. And the one weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit. To fight against the enemy. It's like, it's like live according to those values that Jesus has said are true. Even though they seem mad because they were proved to be true when God raised them from the dead. When all the other enemies, all the other authorities threw the worst they had at them. And even seemed to have a victory. Went as far as his death. What did God do? He raises them from the dead. He vindicates them. He shows that every word that came from his mouth was the truth. And it's worth the line in our lives with. When the enemy tempts you with sex, with money, with power, with chasing after the things that he says are important in the world, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember that he has no authority over you. He has no authority over you that you can say no. You can choose to do what God says. You can choose like Jesus chose because his power lives in you and you've been made a part of the new humanity. If you've been born from above by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. And you have a new capacity to live as an ambassador, as somebody who reflects the glory of God to the world. Don't let the enemy trick you into thinking that, that you're fighting a losing battle. You're not. You're on the victorious side. Don't let him trick you into it. And the second thing I would love you to do this week, because I don't like, because this is implications for your whole life, is ask, Lord, what does it actually mean for us to live as the connection point between heaven and earth? What does that mean that you've shared your glory with me, that inheritance that I have because I'm a child of God, that identity I have because I'm a co-heir with Christ, that the glory that the Father had given to Jesus, Jesus gives to us as his church, that we are being built into a living temple to carry the glory of God to the world. Lord, what's the possibilities of that for my life, for my relationships, for my family, for my neighbors, for the things I struggle with inside? What's the possibilities of that for the world? If we're meant to rule in the world, what are the things in the world that need to be fixed? And how are you equipping me to be part of fixing them? to express your glory. And that sounds out there and sounds mad and sounds like this isn't just like a pep talk. You can change the world like some sort of bloody blah, go out and try really hard. No, it's, 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 it's like the spirit of the living God, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and has made you an image of God and the image of God, the carrier of God's glory exists to extend his glory to the world against the powers and principalities, against the other kingdoms of the world. You're made for this. It's not wishful thinking. That's the reason for you. That's the purpose that you have. And if 
for each one of us as individuals, I'm asking that the Lord will cause us to dream, to dream big, to, to, let, him, to let us see that, that we're not just people who sit back and cower and are afraid of the world, but we're people who should confront it right at where it seems like the enemy has built strongholds, where the enemy is strong and he can't be broken against. Because what did Jesus say? He says, I'm going to build my church. Who's his church? All of you. And what's going to happen? The gates of hell won't prevail against it. So if it looks like there's a stronghold, guess what? You're meant to be the battering ram. You're meant to be the people who knock it down in the power of Jesus. And Father, I'll pray you would take these things, Lord. They're, 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 they're almost too big, Lord. To, uh, they're too big for words to express, Lord. And um, for me to convince of, Lord, and I, I probably need convincing in my own heart, if I'm honest, Lord, I need to know what it looks like on a Monday morning. Tuesday morning and Wednesday afternoon when I'm wrecked, Lord, to be, uh, to embody your Holy Spirit, to, to, um, to reflect your glory to the world, to, I need my eyes open to that, Lord, and I'm praying that you would journey with us in your grace, Lord, you would cause our eyes to be open to the things that we can't see. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God. Would you cause us to see, Lord, with the eyes of faith, Lord, the hope that you've called us to, Lord God the riches of our glorious inheritance in Christ, Lord God, the all-surpassingness of it, Lord God. And would you cause us to live lives of adventure, of boldness, of courage, not lives of defeat or resignation, because that's not who you've made us to be in any way, shape, or form, Lord God, but that um, we will be set apart as your church, Lord God, that we would take a hold of everything you went through, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha for us, Lord God, so that you could be glorified again, so that we could share in your glory. Had you not done that, we've no hope of sharing in that glory ever again, and humanity is lost, but we're not lost. We were lost, but we've been found because of you, Jesus. And, oh, Lord, just show us the extent of our foundness, the implications of it, Lord God. Set us on fire, Lord God, like you set your early church on fire, Lord God. And send us out, Lord God, to start fires all over the place, Lord God, until your kingdom comes in all of its fullness, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.